0: Hello, welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am your host, Joe Robinson, as ever. Joining me from Cornwall today is Mr. James Spender. Hello, Joseph. We don't call it Cornwall, though, we call it Kernow around here. Yeah, we've got our own flag as well. So if you, you know, I'm not even in the British Isles currently. Uh, before we get into the technicalities of all of that, we'll talk you through today's guest, and it is none other than Mr. Magnus Backstead, the man who told us once that he eats. Lives and breathes Parry Bay, whatever that means. We got on a call with Magnus to talk through Parry Bay, which returns after two years of no hell of the north. It is back this Sunday in October, slightly different time of year, but we are excited nonetheless. Before we get into that interview with Magnus, however, James and I are going to run down some of the things that we've been liking and disliking in the world of cycling over the last two weeks. James since I last spoke to you, so much has happened in both of our lives. We've been abroad. We've watched cycling races. You've stayed in a five-star hotel. How has it been? It's been great. Uh, I've not. I'm sort of slightly discombobulated um, by the
1: whole thing. Way too much has happened to my feeble little brain, which is used to only looking at the same things for vast periods of time, and suddenly it's had this overdose of stimulus. And uh, on you know, on that note, as you said, I am in Cornwall. I am sitting in. A tiny little bedroom with all the curtains and windows shut. So if this does sound terrible, very sorry. But in terms of like my general outlook on life, it is very good. I can see the sea, and it's raining, intermittently. That's quite nice. But yeah, going away cycling in Greece uh, last week. Goodness, that was just absolutely banging. Hotels aside, it was a lovely hotel. Um, should probably give it a shout out. The Marbella Elix. If anyone's there, all inclusive if you like that kind of thing.
0: All inclusive with just house house spirits or are they branded?
1: oh uh, no, if you no branded spirits aren't included, mate. Okay. Uh, you've got the house okay. you got the house wines, you've got the house wines. Uh, you've got your fix, which is local Greek Greek beer. Um, Carlsberg weirdly, you know, terrible beer but it makes it out there. And no spirits, Aperol spritzes, you know, ten euros. There might be a few of those on like expense bill. I don't know. I just don't know. But cycling, I really like cycling in Greece because it's just generally speaking still fairly like sparsely kind of like populated country in the areas where you want to cycle which does make it challenging in terms of like shit where am I going to get food and water from but there's quite a lot of like I don't know streams whatever um little mountain fountains but it also just means that there's just nobody except for the old stray dog that you have to shoot your water bottle out in the face so it doesn't bite you and give you rabies because that would be terrible because there ain't no phone signal around there I don't even know if There is such a thing as, like, grease air ambulance. I think you just get scraped off the road at some point and you get put down, you know, classic tourist accident. So that's been lovely. And uh, you've been out and about as well, I believe. Well, I know because you have told me because I've seen some of your output um, on the World of Cyclist Underscore magazine Instagram. You've been at the
0: World. Yeah, I, I was at the World Championships, listeners. I went last Monday. Spent a week out there. Ironically, I came home before the men's road race. But yeah, so I was out in Leuven, out in Flanders. Home of Stella. Home of Stella Artois is Leuven. Home of cycling is Flanders. It was incredible, the atmosphere of the crowds. It was great to see crowds out and about 10 deep at points around the course in Leuven and out in the sort of Flemish countryside. It really was a great event, great spectacle that was made ever better by the fact that Flanders is you know, let's not deny, the home of road cycling. And everyone from the 85-year-old nan to the 5-year-old kid was out on the roadside cheering on Walt Van Aert, Remco Van Poel, and just enjoying being able to watch bike racing without masks, you know, in big crowds, drinking beer, eating frites, mayo, waffles. It was it was raucous and I really loved it. That sounds beautiful. And you also did some riding, uh, you mm.
1: did a couple of climbs. What what would you say? You know, what's your what's your five five top bergs? And what's your what's your hardest berg?
0: No, I'm not going to tell you my five top bergs because I've actually got a video coming on cyclist YouTube channel that relays the top five bergs. What I will tell you though is that I did the Mervan van Gerardsbergen, the Kapel the Moor, mm. for the first time ever, and it was easier. Than I thought it was going to be.
1: I thought the same. I don't want to say that's not because I'm a particularly uh, talented rider. Nor am I. Where it comes in Flanders, and because of the you know because of the crowds, I think it's tech. It's been one of those points where the race can split, and so the guys right guys and girls riding it hammer and tongs. So it looks probably harder in a strange sense than it actually is because of how much they're gassing when they're doing it. But compared to
0: Coppenberg uh, or something, which I've ridden. It's just insane. It's just horrible. It's just horrible. Oh, the Coppenberg. The Koppenberg is in a completely different plane to anything I've ever climbed up. It. it was, it's incredible. You know, it's a bucket list place for most road cyclists, but it genuinely is somewhere you've got to go and ride because I don't think there's anywhere else that I've ever been that you, it's just so all-encompassed there. Everywhere you go, anyone you speak to, there's just so much love for the sport and you really just soak it all up and drink it in while you're there. And Luckily, we've got some great weather as well. We had a lovely lunch halfway up the though. There's a lovely cafe that did a terrific croque-macher and frites. I would suggest that's why you found it so easy is because you stopped halfway for lunch. <laughs> Actually, I did, I did it four times. I went up and down it four times and I got stopped by this group of French blokes who were there for the World Championships. I'm sure they're really happy considering Julien Alaphilippe defending these title. Um, they stopped me to talk to me about the bike I was riding, which was a S works Tarmac SL7. Uh, they asked me a question in French, which I understood, so I therefore answered in French. And then ten minutes later, they were still talking to me in French, and I had proceeded to understand none of what they were talking to me about. Um, <laughs> so after me, they... <laughs> so I just had to sort of say, "So I've got to go and climb, got to go and climb the uh, the mer again." <laughs> <See laughs> yes, yeah. later. Yeah, they asked me how many gears are on the bike, and I said twelve in French because I understood that. But then they, I would have said soixante which is the only French number that comes to mind, which I think is possibly seventy. <laughs> yes, I said yeah. So, so, yeah. van van der twenty two. But no, it was very good. The only thing that I didn't like about the trip is gnat bites. Turns out late summer, early autumn in Flanders, especially when it's hot, lots of gnats and I've been bitten alive, James, you'll see that I've got Ooh. I've got loads.
1: Your your elbows look like the celestial heavens on a clear night, Joe. So yeah. many stars. So many little red bright stars. It's true though, but your the pictures, some of the pictures I saw that you showed me, make Belgium at the moment looked like the kind of glorious American Midwest in the height of summer, just like these beautiful golden scorched fields, corn, you know, the remnants of corn stubble and stuff that's been harvested. Looked never seen. Bel- I've been to Belgium on a number of occasions, and I love it, but it's fun. it's f- very grim,
0: <laughs> very grim. We can take that bit. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I what I'll say is um, for for subscribers to the magazine. When we do, we, you know, we've, we've shot some classic climbs up there, most notably the Eau de Cuermont, which is a really in, infamous climb in the Tour of Planners race, often gets climbed three times. It's iconic. We went out, obviously, at the end of summer, and it you get a completely different perspective of the climb. It looks so different, mainly because the fields that are normally bare, empty, filled with VIP tents during the race in, in spring were now resplendent with these huge cornfields. So, we it, it will look so different when we publish, you know, it as a classic climb in the mag. And I'm excited for readers to sort of see it in that perspective rather than it being overcast, drab, grey, <laughs> as it usually is. Um <laughs> But it was it was it was a beautiful part of the world. Um and plus they do really good beer and really good chips. So what sorts of like? Exactly. Uh, anything from your trip to Greece or in otherwise that you've been disliking around the world of cycling at the moment, James?
1: Disliking, you you've changed the tone there. We were really onto a high and suddenly you just dropped down to the disliking. Do you want it's because you want to have a like sandwich, you want to go like, dislike, like, right? Yeah. Okay, well, disliking. Do you know what's really annoyed me? Because I'm at this place in Cornwall, right? So obviously we've had to call in Tesco's shop. Wouldn't normally do that. I like to go to the supermarket myself. Fruit, you don't get to choose it, someone else who chooses it for you. Ripe and ready avocados. Ripe and ready my my backside you could literally like stuff these things in a cannon and shoot them at the french they're like bullets man yeah there's nothing right ripe- but i'm, I'm gonna f- I'll, I'll have to leave them for guests
0: in about a month's time they may have ripened for guests that are coming around the beginning of november i can i can only agree with you they're like the little balls you get at um fun fairs to knock down the cans
1: yeah you could play skittles with old men with these things it's, yeah so that's that's uh that's really irked me as you can tell so i might put in a complaint about that later because nothing I like to do more than write some complaints when I'm on holiday and I've got, you know, a lot of time at my fingertips. Um, and also, I'm down here for the first time in what seems like a long time without a bike. And that feels strangely kind, especially in the petrol crisis. Should we talk about the petrol crisis? We could do another podcast on that. Don't worry, the army's stepping in because Boris has got it. Don't worry, Boris is in charge. and He's got the army. So that's fine. You
0: know what? We could discuss the petrol crisis Um I just come back from Belgium and it was absolutely fine. So we filled up the tank before we got in the Euro Tunnel. Oh, perfect. Um, well, maybe maybe we could discuss what's behind the petrol crisis, which is the fact that we're no
1: longer allied with places like Belgium, <laughs> which may be part of the reason. But we'll, we won't go there. Though no, the point being um, that I don't have a bike, and sort of in, in a strange sense, yeah, the petrol crisis does sort of play on your mind as much as like you're kind of stuck. Like if the nearest train station eighteen miles away, right? If I had to just walk. There, (laughs) that's that's a very long day. But worst case scenario, if I had a bike with me, it would be a bit annoying. But I could cycle there, and it's two hours. And you just realise like bicycles give you this immense kind of like window into a sense of freedom, which you don't necessarily exercise. But it's like it's just lovely knowing that it's there, and to not have one. And also, I think the cycling around here would be pretty good. It's very hilly. It looks pretty tough. It's very picturesque. Lots of coast. So.
0: Yeah, I feel a bit bereft not having a bike, so that's that's a downside. And the best thing is that you can you can then stop for lunch at one of Rick Stein's establishments, and he might be there in a lovely pastel Ralph Lauren shirt, making you some sort of fish dish. So,
1: Joe, just on the uh, tail end of that, we did say we'd have a a like dislike like sandwich. So, just to round yours off, what's what would be your favourite kind of takeaway other than them all, the fruit and the beer? Your take, your favourite thing that you drank or ate. In Belgium, what would you recommend us, readers, our readers, going and, and listeners even, go and get?
0: I brought some back. I actually brought some back. Uh, I have a bit of a an obsession with a drink called. It's made by Schweppes. You know the lemonade people. I know the lemonade people. In in Belgium, France, and Italy, they don't make it in the UK. They do a thing called Schweppes Aragon, which is like a combination of citrus fruits. So it's like grapefruit, lemon, lime. I I drink it by the gallon Ooh. when I'm out in Belgium or in Beautiful. Italy or France, and I brought some back with me. And it was absolutely delicious. Wow, that's so good. Well, fantastic. Well, I like that.
1: Um, And, you know, from the Greek point of view, barbecued lamb sort of fits the same bill. doesn't travel well, though, barbecued lamb, got to say. But one thing I've found recently, uh, which uh, I've been introduced to, you know Kind Bars? Yes. You know them? Yeah, K-I-N-D. Yeah. Um, Delicious, like peanut, whatever, pretty, you know, Good for cycling in terms of like the amount of uh, nutrition involved. A lot of protein, good fats, whatever. Expensive though, aren't they? Two quid. Aldi though, mate. Aldi do a little knockoff kind bar, right? And you get four of them for two pounds. Four of them for two pounds. They're called specially selected gluten-free uh, dark chocolate and peanut bars. So that's been one of my kind of big takeaways from travelling this time around: is being able to source some slightly cheaper food uh, like on bike supplements. So, big up, you know, and I'm sort of fishing for an Aldi sponsorship deal because I feel that could be, they seem to be spending a lot of money at the moment with a lot of people, so we could take some of
0: that. Good, okay. On that note, let's move on to our chat with Magnus Backstead. As I said, we, so I recorded this chat, you'll notice James isn't on this because I actually recorded this chat with Magnus all the way back in April this year ahead of when Roubaix was meant to be, but then it got cancelled and postponed to October So we held on to the audio and held on to the interview till when Roubaix was here because Magnus is a man who absolutely loves racing across the cobbles. He made a career out of it and we got some amazing anecdotes about what is ultimately the best day of racing in the calendar as far as I'm concerned. So we hope you enjoy the interview. We want a bit more of like the maybe like the hardest moment or one of the more memorable things that you remember that wasn't necessarily you winning. And obviously not, huh. getting, not getting Magnus on the podcast for that would be a crime as you are <laughs> a connoisseur of the race. But
2: yeah, so yeah, just, if you've got any was, good stories. I was sitting racking, racking my brain on this one um, at home, trying to sort of work out where to start. Because I mean, every every single time you go across the cobbles, you know, of of bait, when you get to the finish, you could basically write a two hundred page book of every, every everything that's happened through you know that particular day, um, from from morning till the the moment you cross the line in in at the velodrome. I think I've had a fairly scot free run most of the time. The only thing that potentially springs to mind is. My first ride at Roubaix, obviously being quite excited about being on the start line of it, you know, one of those, it was obviously the race that I was dreaming of riding as a, as a little kid and I remember getting to the forest and everyone hyped that up as we still do, um, you know, the, for, the forest is the, the big one, um, you know, it's certainly the most spectacular one in terms of the, the images that, that we see. Um but the chase going into the forest was absolutely mad and I had to look after Fred Monkerson and, and did so, but then ended up getting swamped um just before we got to uh, to the forest. And I'd done my job for Fredo, he needed to, to take his own his own line with the last hundred and fifty meters to, to the entry of the of the forest and came around me. So it's basically like a full lead-out train going to any sprint or whatever and so he was sprinting onto the coals and I ended up getting swamped and it was a massive crash just as, as we see quite often happening in there on the entrance to the forest and I remember stood there I didn't actually go down and I remember I just stood there and I was looking at this mountain of bikes and people and didn't you know I could just see the the, the race going going away from us. Uh, on the other side of that pile of people and i just thought you know what i'm just going to have to run across this now so trying to trod sort of gently and not step on on anyone but bikes and whatever i can care less at that point because you know i just needed to get 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 over there and and get back on my bike and so i ended up just logging my bike on my shoulder cyclocross style and just kind of running across the bikes and um jumping on on the other side and spent the next 15 kilometers or so chasing to get back back on and and did so. Um, and then, you know, the race obviously ended up being whittled down to, um, a very small number of us with, well, it was a small number of riders, but largely Mapai riders. And, um, that was the last year that the late great Franco Ballerini won. So, um,
0: do you remember when you got into the team bus at the end of that first Roubaix? Because you came seventh, which is to top yeah. 10 on your debut's like almost unheard of. Yeah. Um, and also you looked after Frank and he got fifth, didn't he? So you had done, yeah. basically, you couldn't do your job any better, you know. And when you're racing against the Mapai guys at that time,
2: it was like, they, they were, were specialists. unreal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that whole team was unreal because... It didn't matter what we did, there were still, there was still Mapai riders there, and they were all previous winners and you know, super domestiques for that particular race. So, mm. yeah, it was. Do you remember being, do you
0: remember going in? Did you use the showers after the first race? And do you remember that moment?
2: I, I did use the showers that first race, and I think that was probably the only time that, um, that I used the showers actually, because in after that, we ended up. Starting to have you know bigger buses and, and all that sort of stuff coming in, um, into uh, into play. So maybe once or twice that I was using the showers actually, but yeah, the, walking in the to the showers the first time and getting that feeling of the heritage that this particular race you know has. And I think that's what why my fascination with it as well is that, you know, you can do a hundred races a year, but there's only one day that looks like that, mm. you know, that that has that level of, you know, the cobblestones, the history behind it, the, the history of the of the region and the roads that we're riding on, um, and all that sort of stuff, and then sort of getting in, walking into the showers, and and it's almost like you you know and it still is and still now when I visit the to see my plaque on, on, on in in the shower cubicles it's still the hair stands straight on my arms as I walk in there there's just that vibe in there that, that is yeah I don't think you can describe it really it's, it's just electric and you could feel all the you know all the riders that have been there before and had positive and negative experiences with the race and had that love for it still. Um, And, you know, for me now it's still, uh, you know, the first time I went in to see the plaque itself in, in the shower cubicles, um, I didn't realize that mine is sitting right next to, to probably the best bike rider that the world has ever seen in Eddie Merckx. And I remember sort of, Yeah, just dwelling up, you know, and and uh, that was quite a special moment knowing that I was in in that kind of company, having won that race.
0: And I guess, because unlike um, a lot of riders now in the World Tour, they'd have ridden, they ride Roubaix every year because obviously, you know, Van Arp rides for a World Tour team and he'll lead that team. Whereas for you, you some seasons didn't ride Roubaix because of the 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 teams you were in, you'd be at sort of pro mm. what we know as pro team level now. So how how much more importance did it make when you knew that season you were going to be given that opportunity? Because you didn't ride the did I don't did you ride the I didn't of- ride
2: it two two years prior to to it. I um, yeah. I didn't ride because yeah I mean I I didn't get a contract extension with Credit Agricole um, and I spent until December in. 2002 looking for a team and and ended up signing with Facta. in the end I managed to convince Kim Anderson that it was a good idea to to um to put me on the books there and I didn't actually I didn't watch the race for for those two years I didn't I didn't although I lived a couple of kilometers away from you know I've been in, in, in Waremme in Belgium it would have been easy to go down and watched the race and my family you know we had friends and family coming across to to go and watch the race and I stayed at home and just went out and rode my bike I didn't want to hear it didn't want to see because it hurt me that much not not being on the start line of my favorite race of the year and I remember going into 2004 um, with Alessio Bianchi and knowing that we were going to Roubaix and we had a solid solid to line up for for that race with you know with Taffy and and Baldato in there Marcus Young, Chris Scott Sunderland, Martin Bastia, myself unfortunately we were quite heavily injury struck just before that race so we only came there with six riders to, to start but yeah just knowing at the start of the year that we were going it meant so much more to me and I probably worked harder than ever to to arrive there in in good form and I think I could see already at Tirreno and, you know, I did a couple of, of monster rides down there. Um, I felt good in Milan-San Remo and, and really good in Flanders as well. And just everything fell into place for me. So,
0: And one, um, something you often get, I remember speaking to Alexander Kristoff once. He told me that he hates Peru And I remember for years, everyone was like, he's the perfect build, he could win it. And he was like, I just really don't like cobblestones. But you, you're... And I don't you think get, anyone likes Cobalt. This is the thing. You get, you get some riders who have obviously just so are naturally gifted athletes and can win on that race but don't like it. And then you've got guys like yourself who... Because you lived in that area. and ha, So how much were you riding those roads when you weren't having to race them? Because you're, so, you're quite I, well known for like pitching up to a section with a car full of stuff and just spending the day going up and down sectors.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, preparation is key to, to any race, and I think we see that more and more these days as well. And, you know, the, the, the detail that goes into um, the, the race brief in the morning in the bus and, you know, basically PowerPoint presentations for, for, for the riders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess at that point in time, we didn't really do that. We didn't have that uh, sort of technology available to us. Um, but yeah, I went, I went there at least once, if not twice beforehand to make sure that I knew the equipment I was going to ride and, and make sure that everything, um, was working the way it should. I didn't actually go and train on the cobbles down there an awful lot. Um, you know, I had cobblestones that were obviously not as bad as what they are in, in Bay, but it's still bad enough to, to get the feel and get the, get that rhythm on the cobblestones and, and find the, the right gearing and cadence and, and all of that sort of stuff and it, you just basically need to ride a lot of cobbles to to get good at it just like you would for for any other part of uh, of, of the sport really so yeah I, I spent a lot of time sort of doing max efforts across the one one game leader um, one of the sections in, in um, not too far from where the race in Nokura was um, actually they went over that section um, we have the cobblestone section in Martha as well which you know is part of Tour of Flanders and had news about that um, are pretty well they were worse a couple of years back they've kind of made them a bit nicer now but it's still cobblestones and still long stre- relatively long stretches of it so I, I felt that I could train well up there um, and prepare myself for it and the more you raced on it as well, um, the, the better you got at it. And I think that's one of the reasons that we still see a lot of the, especially some of the older guard in the peloton now doing Newsblood, Kern, um, E3, um, you know, they're trying to get as much racing in in, in Belgium and Northern France as they possibly can to, to get the race speed and get the feel for Everything you know, going across cobblestones. So, um, yeah, for me, the, the preparation for all of this was absolutely key. And, um, uh, yeah.
0: And a good, I, I guess a thing we should talk about is your last Rube, which was 2008, wasn't it? With Garmin.
2: Yeah. How yeah. did
0: you, did you know before you started that that would be your last time racing Rube?
2: No, no, I didn't. Um, you know, Unfortunately, the body's sort of taken a, a bit of a beating in in a couple of bad crashes, not really allowing enough time to recover, um, to sort of yeah let the body heal, do the rehab, um, and and I think it was a different era back then as well in terms of how you know everyone you know the teams were with with their riders um, nowadays. It's the teams are protecting the riders an awful lot, and I think you still you need to protect riders from themselves. Yeah. The bike rider is never going to want to sit on the sideline, waiting um, for things to get better, and then get back out on the bikes. If if they feel that they could potentially turn their legs over in one way or another, they will. Yeah. Um, so it's it's almost. I think the, the world has understood the mentality of a bike rider now and the teams are getting smarter with it and protecting the bike riders from themselves. Whereas when I was racing, it was largely encouraged to get back as quickly as possible. Um, and I was always of the mentality that if I could find a way of fixing myself faster, I I would go about finding that way. And that was almost a, a coping mechanism for me to to get... Um, through the, the patches of injuries and, and get out the other side was that okay I can't train so I've got to switch my mentality, switch that energy into something else. And I was speaking to specialist doctors, you know, alternative treatments, etc., to to sort of find a way of shaving, even if it was one day or two days or a week, you know, and you always found a doctor who could put you back to better a little better back together a little bit quicker. And then if he could do that, there's gotta be someone who can do it faster than that. So you then went chasing after that. So uh, in a way, um, I ended up on a downward spiral, um, getting back onto, to my bike, um, too early and not having done the rehab that was required. Um, and somehow, um, you know, ended up pushing, pushing myself too much again and, and getting sick and crashing again and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, Going into that last year, I I definitely had all intentions of carrying on. Um, But towards the back end of that season, um, and especially going actually that winter, nothing really worked. Um, The body wasn't recovering. I was having pains and niggles and injuries, like just little things that just didn't seem to to heal. And I didn't seem to be able to get on top of them. And uh, basically, yeah, ended up having to call it a day in, in January.
0: On, on Roubaix, your, you were in this sort of magnificent time and there's a lot of riders like you who span, your career spanned some of the what we now regard as some of the greatest cobbled riders of all time in that you rode against UOM Museo and people like Franco Ballerini um. and Andre Teffery. And then you also, when you were finishing your career, had Tom Boonen turn up and Fabian Cancellara. Um, yeah, and you raced them both, and raced them at the head of the fairs. When you, if you look back at it, and because you're an expert, because you've won the race, you would know who was the person that you
2: saw as the best rider of Parry Bay that you ever competed against. It's difficult to to answer that question because all of those riders are so different in 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 their ability. At, well, not ability because they're all insanely good bike riders, but the 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 way that they rode the cobblestones were different. Everyone was different in the in, in that aspect. Um, one of the most awesome sights for me on on a bike was Franco Ballerini when he rode the cobblestones. It looked effortless. It was just a a show of brute force and power. Um and you know the cobbles didn't seem to to bounce him on the bike at all. It was just like he floated on top of them. Um, so f- for me, Franco was, you know, the the guy that I would look at and try and analyse what he did and how he did it um, to sort of see if that was possible to replicate to improve my riding in terms of race tactics and just the overall package. I've got to say, Fabian is is probably the the, the best guy out there, Bonan just again strong had a great team around him and it didn't really matter how he did it because you dragged him into the finish to, to the velodrome he'd win the sprint he had the power to go from long range as well so he was a very complete package whereas i think fabian was more he knew that if he dragged bonan in um you know he would get get rolled in the sprint so he had to raise the race completely differently and Race it in a way that that I enjoy watching a, a lot more. Where you, you got to go on the move, and to me, there's nothing more beautiful than a than a solo win in in the Para Bay. Mm.
0: And you are of this sort of this bunch of riders who have won Roubaix through arguably against the odds. Although you were a specialist and you were very good at the stones, as we said, you weren't one of like you weren't riding for Mapai or you weren't riding for modern day Quick step. And you've, we've had other guys like Matt Heyman, for instance, who yeah. just, it all went right one day. Was there one guy or one rider that you rode with who you thought had everything what it took to be a Paru Bay legend, but it just never worked for them? Um,
2: I mean, it, it, there's so many riders out there who are good at, at, at riding these kind of races. Um, Ian Stannard is one of the guys that you know. I know loved that race, and I would have liked to have seen um, actually winning the race. You know, he, he put a lot of effort into it, and I think he's he's probably the one guy that you know that that that, that would have sat nicely, and I think it would have been a fitting way of of uh, you know getting him to to win that race um, for sure. Um, but yeah, there, there are a lot of riders out there who never got to win it, but um, you know, I think deserved it. Um, Baldato being one of them. Um, you know, he was up there in pretty much every other bike race in in the world in in his heyday, but just didn't quite manage to pull pull that one off. And I think and I know for a fact that he he would have loved to have done that. But even on even the year that I won it. Um, he sacrificed himself, you know, 100% for, for me to, to get me into the best possible position to, to win it. And, you know, I'm obviously eternally grateful for the work that, that he did. But at the same time, I think, looking the way he rode that day, had he looked after himself a bit more, he would have probably been able to win it that day.
0: And so this year's period, we're going to have obviously the first women's on, which we spoke about extensively with Eleanor. And mm-hmm. uh, I remember you saying that Lucinda Brand was your pick. But if over, overhead, what does your heart want to see on the second weekend of April this year in terms of the men and the women's race? Because I think our head dictates that it's probably going to be Van der Poel or Van Aert and it's probably going to be Lucinda or maybe Anna van der Breggen. But who, who would your heart like to see win Roubaix this
2: year? That is a very difficult question. That is a very, very difficult question. Well, one rider that I know has got a lot of love for Peru Bay, but um, so far hasn't really been able to to ride it for himself or, you know, really go for it. Um, and I'm not sure whether he's actually on the start line this year or not, is Luke Rope. Mm. You know, he's we've spoken many a time about the race and... You know, he he. When he was going for the classics before his his injuries and all that, he he was obsessed by it. And and I like I like when guys that have that passion for for the race get get to stand on the top step of the podium. Now, I I think it's going to be very very difficult to to see past the the two cross riders just from what we've seen so far this season. You know I think we're gonna basically be looking at a, a different a different sport when those two guys get to battle it out head- to head and I, I do hope we get that battle of head-to-head van art Vanderpool because I think it will it will change how we look at Pararu for for a long time it will definitely be a, a great race um, on the women's side I know that I was saying you know Lucinda Brandis is definitely I think up for a good one there. Um, Ellen van Dijk has looked really good in in healthy ageing tour. But the rider that is impressing me the most at the moment and looks to be riding cobblestones effortlessly, uh, both in Head Newsblood and what we saw yesterday in, in Nokura. Right at this moment in time, on day form, Lotte Kopecky is going to be very difficult to beat. I, w- I would like to see a big battle between those riders there, Kopecki, um and the two Trek girls, and obviously we got SD Works this year riding mega, mega as a team. Um, and they seem to have riders there. And I think he would be, you know, Van der Bregen, I don't think he's going to want to uh, pack a bike up without having that one on her on her Palmaras. So I think there will be a, a commitment and probably one of the most spectacular bike races that we'll see for some time um, in, in the women's race and let alone what's going to be in the men's race. So um, this year is is looking very, very, very good. So James, there
0: we have it. Our interview with Magnus Baxted around Paru Bay. Uh, as we said at the top of the show, it's been over two years since we've got to see A hell of the north. Uh, It's going to finally be here on Sunday. And even better yet, there's also going to be the inaugural women's race, which is really exciting. Um, What are you looking forward to most this weekend? Um, The very real threat of rain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that'd be good. We haven't had a...
1: We always bang about this every single year, don't we? When was the last uh, rainy Paris-Roubaix? Wasn't it something ridiculous like 2003? It was ages and ages ago. Yeah. It probably wasn't 2003, but yeah, you know, just, just to hyperbolize the point, it was a long time ago. So we might get the awful weather we've kind of been hoping for. And people have been calling, you know, not a particularly strong, uh, you know, particularly vocal minority. It's true. But from time to time, people have kind of mused about, you know, wouldn't it be better to kind of put something like Roubaix at the back end of the season, because it's exciting, you get um, you know Lombardia, which really takes advantage of the weather in Italy because it looks so pretty. You know the race of the falling leaves. Roubaix is a is a brutal, brutal race. Set it when it might get even more brutal, and do it. You know off the you know it kind of, kind of sort of feeds into cyclocross anyway. Cyclocross kicks off. In like towards the end of October Couple of weeks, yeah Yeah, so I think it sort of feels like a natural segue So that'll be nice Um, But yeah, I mean the main thing is Finally, finally, finally You got a women's paris Bay. What took them so long? Literally, you have to ask what took them so long Other than the fact that There's just too much pressure on ASO um, To, you know, to ignore these sorts of things And you know, looking ahead to next year We're going to have the first And like since the 80s They tried it a bit in the 80s the first actual official Tour de France La Femme, like Tour de France women's. Not just like Le Grand Boucar, whatever, like some, you know, variation on the theme which runs for a couple of stages or maybe just even one and doesn't have the official name. This will be the official women's Tour de France. So, you know, kicked off with Roubaix, hopefully carried on next year and that's going to be only mean great things for the sport. And the racing will be frenetic and brilliant, I think. For the women's, it's going to be so because everyone's going to be so amped for it. Downside, as uh, we discussed earlier, pointed out, didn't realise this that Eleanor uh, Baxter has. What did you say? She she crashed and isn't going to be racing.
0: So she crashed. Yeah. So Eleanor Baxted, who you know, you listeners, you'd have remembered. We chatted to Eleanor and Magnus earlier in the year about potentially being the first father daughter duo to race Perry Bay, um, and in an issue, we've got a feature on that in the latest issue of the mag. Eleanor, unfortunately, having battled back from that leg injury that she had earlier in the year, uh, had got back racing, crashed a race last week, I believe, in Belgium, and broke her collarbone. Uh, She is back on the bike already, but I don't think she'll be starting. uh, By the time you listen to this, the start list will probably be out, and I can almost guarantee Eleanor will not be on it. She's not going to Matt home in it. She's not currently training on Zwift. No, no, she hasn't got that. The uh, the time is unfortunately not her friend with this one, yeah. which is a real disappointment because it would have been great to see that story unfold. Um, I'm super excited though. I think this Sunday is going to be one of a Roubaix for the ages. You know, Having not had the race since 2019 now, you're going to have a lot of guys there who are have not got the experience of racing Roubaix. Uh, you're going to have a whole women's peloton of which none of them have experience of racing Roubaix. So you're going to have, when we spoke to Magnus about this actually earlier in the year, you've got a peloton of women who traditionally we've said you win Roubaix by sort of learning the race and learning the craft of racing Roubaix. So I think, like you said, it's going to be frenetic. It's going to be nervous. I think there's going to be a lot of attacks, a lot of aggressive racing from early on. And I think that's really, I think it's going to really be a race that sort of you're going to remember. It's going to live long in the memory. And the same with the men, I'm, I'm excited to see how, after such a long season for the men, over which a lot of the favourites have been racing since January. You know, if you think of people like Walt Van Aert, Mathieu van der Poel, Tom Pickock, these guys have been racing all year, done grand tours, gone to the Olympics. Who is it just going to be this ultimate war of attrition where it's literally like last man standing because everyone's so empty? Um, and obviously, after the world's last week, which Looked like one of the most brutal World Championship races in a very long time. I think it's going to be. I think there is going to be some explosive moves and a lot of people blowing up in a very spectacular way.
1: So you know, as we've established on this podcast probably many times before, I know nothing about road racing. You do, though, Joe. You have an encyclopedic knowledge and some kind of like strange, uh, almost like uh, kind of like trackside racecourse racehorse owning insight into this kind of thing so who are
0: your odds who you're backing so for the women's race i think the people that we should be watching we haven't had the start list come out but i'd be surprised if she wasn't racing it so ellen van Dijk, the dutch rider for trek segafredo just won the women's elite time trial uh she's obviously in good form she's a really powerful strong rider she's quite fast at the end of a race she got a decent sprint on her i feel like she's a bit of a bigger rider uh, I feel like she'll be suited to the cobbles and have sort of be sort of unmatched as would Lotto Capecki, the Belgian national champion. I feel like she will potentially have a really good race too and there two to watch out. And then in the men's race, ooh, I think this is a tough one. I think a lot of eyes will be on Walt Van Art, but I don't know how much the worlds have taken out of him. And he's had a very long season and you could see towards the end of the men's race, he just didn't have that, that final bit of power to sort of match some of the moves. And the same with Van der Poel. We don't know how he's coming back from that back injury. So I'm going to say two riders you want to watch out for in the men's race will be Ineos Grenadier's Dylan Van Baar. He came second in the men's elite road race. He's super strong and clearly in good form and has made a habit of kind of nipping off at of the front of races with sort of 60, 70k to go and holding holding pelotons off. Uh, so I think he's one to watch. And the second one, someone who really impressed me actually at the weekend, hadn't seen a while, was Zednik Stieber. Oh. Three-time former cyclocross world champion. He's, he, what's he now? Like
1: 34,
0: 36, Stebar? Yeah, he's getting on. He's in his mid-30s. Traditionally, like if you look at his results, his palmaris from Roubaix, he is cons- consistently top 10. Consistently top 10, consistently top 5. Um, been really unlucky in the past. Uh, not to have won the race himself quite infamously crashed into some fans uh, I think on his like, first or second go at Roubaix but he was incredibly strong at the Worlds this week to get a top 10 I think he came seventh he's going to be part of the De Quickstep team that are going to be mighty strong with lots and lots of options um, so I'd keep an eye on Jednek Stiba because he knows how to race those cobbles uh, if the weather turns his cross capabilities will sort of come into play. And I feel like he's the kind of guy that may be able to get off the front and not be watched as closely as some of the others. So I'd say yeah, Jednek Stiba is my my bolter for the weekend. Oh. He's the bolter of the weekend. He's also a very good runner. He's also smells very good.
1: Oh yeah, I remember he wears really good cologne.
0: <laughs> yeah. He's also one of the best smelling pros I've ever met. There you go. Joe's Bolter, best smelling pro you ever met. Um but obviously I'm going to, I'll I'll be completely wrong and it'll, someone completely different will win. Nah, well more to the point, you know, people probably haven't listened this far, so that's fine. <laughs> um anyway, we'll call an end to that episode here, James, because I want you to go back on your holiday. Um shouldn't be doing this while you're while you're off. Go and enjoy the cor- Cornish countryside, mate. I'm going to go ferry to Padstow, get a capacity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, As ever, thank you very much to Lindsay for producing, putting together the episode. If you enjoyed this and you want to hear more from us, make sure you subscribe to the show. Give us a like, give us a rating on Apple, etc., etc., wherever you podcast. Until then, we'll be back in two weeks' time with what is undoubtedly one of our best ever interviews with a certain Jens Voigt. Jens Voigt. Jens Voigt. Jens Voigt, John. Jens Voigt. We discussed that in the episode. It was brilliant. I can attest to that. As James can attest to. So we'll catch you again in two weeks' time. Marvellous. Well, lovely to see you, matey, and uh, look forward to it two
1: weeks.